Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. I'd like to introduce a guest speaker that we have today. His name's Gene Apple. Gene is the senior pastor of Eastside Christian Church in Anaheim, California, a church of well over 8,000 people. He's also served as the senior pastor of Willow Creek in Chicago and Central Christian in Las Vegas. He's also the president of the North American Christian Convention. So if you're from our brotherhood or movement of churches, you know of the North American. It's the biggest gathering of our churches, our people, our preachers. It's a time of encouragement and teaching. And Gene is the president this year. He's also be teaching over at uh, Preaching and Teaching, uh, convention this week at Ozark. So we had the opportunity to have Gene with us, and I found two amazing things about him. I'd heard a lot of good things about Gene, but what I learned by just getting to meet with him and spend time with him is, number one, he loves Jesus very, very much, and he loves the gospel. Number two, he's a Chicago Cub fan, so I know where there is no division, there will be joy and celebration. Amen? So I'm telling you, he's got character on top of character. But actually, he has come to uh, bring a message in the gospel for us And uh, I want to invite you to consider the North American Christian Convention. It happens this summer in Kansas City. So it's it's just a burst up the highway for two hours. It'll be held from June 27th through the 29th. In fact, here's uh, a brief video uh, to give you a vision of what the North American will look like. No matter who you are, where you have been, this church is for everyone. Yet... For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have often struggled to love those who are different than themselves. This summer, thousands will join together in Kansas City to envision a different church, to speak life and hope into the next generation, to unleash God's love and proclaim it from the rooftops. The church is best when we rally around Jesus and launch into the world with His love. This is for everyone. So again, we encourage you to go out into the foyer. Gene will be there after the service, an opportunity to get information about the North American. But would you help me welcome Gene to our stage this morning? Good morning. How y'all doing today? Are you good? In a good mood? You have no idea how honored I am to be at Christ Church and uh, I've been a fan from a distance of this church for a long, long time. I've heard about this church out in the middle of nowhere. I didn't believe it until I saw it today. And uh, I hope you know that what's going on in this church and what God is doing, this is not normal in the average church. And uh, sometimes you can be so close to a miracle that you kind of lose the magnitude of the miracle because it's right up next to you. I hope you never take for granted that you are a part of a great church and you have a great pastor. And uh, I really respect Mark. Don't you love your pastor? He's a good, good man. I know uh, most of you have never heard me speak before. And like right now, you're wondering, Gene, is that your real voice? Do you really sound like that? Right? I get that everywhere I go. Uh, I asked your audio team, said I'd give you 100 bucks if you could make me sound like Barry White today. (laughs) Kind of a Jesus loves you, baby. Something like that. But instead, when God was handing out voices, I got one that sounds like I've been inhaling helium for four days. 
So it's what you got. Greetings from Anaheim, home of the Ducks hockey team, Angels baseball team, and Mickey Mouse, and the most expensive, I mean, happiest place on earth. Yeah, so if you get out to Anaheim, I hope you'll come see us. Hey, I'm thrilled to just, I want to just take a moment and uh, tell you why I'm so excited about uh, what I think is the greatest Christian conference on the planet, this North American Christian Convention. It's going to be just down the road here in Kansas City this June 27th through 29th. And uh, it's going to be an opportunity to gather with thousands of other followers of Jesus to worship together, great preaching and teaching with communicators like Craig Grishel, who leads the largest church in the United States, Life Church, best-selling author John Ortberg, former NFL player Derwin Gray, who's now a pastor. Uh, ladies, great morning Bible study for you with Liz Curtis Higgs. Uh, great session with best-selling author Ann Voskamp. Great women's luncheon with an unbelievable communicator named Charlotte Gamble. And I hope you're thinking about what are you going to do this summer to grow your soul? You know, we heard about CIY earlier. A lot of you are going to send your kids to CIY or to camp this summer because you want God to do something in their life. And my question is, what are you going to do to grow your soul this summer for God to do something in your life? The North American Christian Convention, it's like CIY for big people. It's like church camp for big people. And there's also a children's conference and a student conference that goes on simultaneously with it. We've got a great display out in the lobby today if you'd like to know more about it. There's printed material. We've got a $25 a discount on the registration just for today. And uh, you can check that out. I, I hope that you will. And our theme is a theme that's important to me. The theme of the convention is this is for everyone. And today in your series from the Gospels, uh, I have the privilege to share a text that really kind of unpacks for me why this theme is so personally meaningful to me in my life and biblically in my life. Many years ago in 1968, when Bobby Kennedy was furiously fighting for the Democratic nomination for president, he spent five hours crisscrossing the neighborhoods of Spanish Harlem in New York City one day, very poor neighborhoods. It was an unusually hot and humid day in New York City in April, and at the end of the day, his guide asked him a question. He said, why do you, this, you know, guy who's grown up in a privileged family, an affluent person from an affluent family, why do you come here so often? Bobby Kennedy said, because I found out something I never knew before. I found out that my world was not the real world, that my world was not the real world. I grew up in a predominantly white, small-town, conservative, Midwest pastor's home. And when I was 25 years old, I became the senior pastor of a church in Las Vegas. I didn't even know there were churches in Las Vegas. I thought Las Vegas church sounded like an oxymoron, you know? I was like, what's that going to be like? Are they going to have an Elvis impersonator doing the prelude? Girls in bikinis announcing hymn numbers, you know, kind of. <laughs> Tithe machines in the lobby. What will that be like? And I spent the next 18 years of my life serving a church in Las Vegas. And I found out something that I never knew growing up in the little town that I grew up in in Lincoln, Illinois. I found out that my world was not the real world. At least I found out that my world was only a small, narrow slice of the real world. 
You see, in the town that I grew up in, I never had to really confront my feelings about people who were different than me religiously, socially, economically, politically, spiritually, sexually, because I really didn't know anybody who was different than me. I never had to confront my feelings about people who followed other major world religions because I didn't know anybody who followed other major world religions. I didn't have to confront my feelings about people of other ethnicities and races because I didn't have any significant relationships with people of ethnicities and races. I didn't have to confront my feelings about the LGBTQ community because I really didn't know anybody in the LGBTQ community in my little town of Lincoln, Illinois. I just always assumed it was out there somewhere. And when I moved to Las Vegas, I found out it was out there. (laughs) And those years in Vegas were so good for me because they forced me to rethink my approach to ministry and to life. Because I had to contend in a fresh way with what Jesus really meant when he said in Matthew 19, to love your neighbor as yourself. That was a lot easier for me to do in the town that I grew up in because my neighbors were a lot like me. But that became a new challenge for me in Vegas because Jesus didn't put any asterisk on that statement. Jesus didn't put any presupposition to it, any exceptions to it. He didn't say, love your neighbor as long as they believe like you do. Love your neighbor as long as they live a lifestyle like you do. Love your neighbor as long as they vote like you do. No, he just said, love your neighbor as yourself, period. You see, God's heart and God's house, it's for everyone to love our neighbor. You say, Gene, where do you come up with that idea that God's heart and God's house is for everyone? Right out of the Bible. In fact, the day the church began, Peter stood up before thousands of people in Acts chapter 2, and he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. You turn to the right in your Bible a few pages to Romans chapter 1, and the apostle Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to say it. Everyone. Who believes? It's for everyone. It's not for an exclusive group. It's not just for a few. It's for everyone. You keep going right in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And Peter writes, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you see a theme emerging there in Scripture? God's heart and God's house is for everyone. But to be honest with you, sometimes I don't live like that. Sometimes I don't love my neighbor. I don't love everyone. A while back, I was sitting in a, some bleachers at a local park watching a softball game, some friends play. And it was kind of a lot of, quite a few people in the bleachers that night. And I'm sitting there and uh, I'm with some friends, but I'm listening, kind of eavesdropping on the conversation of the people who are sitting in the rows in front of me. And don't look at me like you've never done that because I know you all do. And they were kind of recounting their lifestyle of the last few weeks. And basically, as they were talking about it, their lifestyle was get up, go to work, go find some place to party after work, find somebody to sleep with that night, go to bed, get up, go to work, go party after work, find somebody else to sleep with the next night, you know, go to bed, etc. just over and over again. And I'm listening to this conversation. Do you know what I found going on inside of me? I didn't find my heart breaking, saying, oh, if it weren't for the grace of God in my life, I could be you know, kind of going on that empty cycle myself. I didn't find myself saying, if only, 
These people knew how valuable, how loved they were by God. I just found myself saying, well, I'm thankful I'm not like them. And I turned to the friend sitting next to me and I said, you're not going to believe the conversation down here. And I just recounted for my friend what I just recounted for you. And then I said, and here's what I said, word for word, you're guest speaker this weekend. And if you lose all respect for me for saying this, I wouldn't blame you. I said, they're a bunch of sleazeballs. That's what I said. And my friend said to me, you know, Gene, every time I'm in an environment like this, I think this is where Jesus would be. These are the people he would be hanging out with. These are the people he would be loving. And God used those words like a dart from the Holy Spirit right into my soul. And I remember dropping my face in my hands just saying, Gene, what is the matter with you? You stand up before thousands of people every weekend and you tell them God loves you and you matter to God and you're valuable to him and you of all people, you're not loving very well right now. You see, I can be like one of those people that Jesus talked about, kind of self-righteous, pride-filled people that loves to look at the speck in the eye of other people. Well, I got this great big plank in my own eye. I find that I possess this dark, depraved nature to take that big plank in my eye and instead of using it to build a bridge between myself and those who are different than me, I use it to build a wall between myself and those who are different than me. And I don't know, maybe you possess that same nature too. For some, it's maybe the person who is of a different skin color and nationality than you, whether they be black or white or Asian or Latino or Jew or Arab. For some, it's the tattoo-covered, body-pierced individual that just looks so different than your personal style. For others, it's the graying senior who seems so out of touch in a world of iPhones, iPads, and text messaging. For some, it's the person of a different religious school of thought, whether they follow Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Mormonism or Judaism or new age kinds of beliefs or atheism. For some, it's the HIV infected person. For some, it's the person who's down and out that they don't want to do anything to do with. For some, they resent that person who is up and empty, the part of the one percenter. Today in our series on the life of Jesus, we come to this text in John chapter 3 where we meet a guy who discovered that his world was not the real world. And there was something missing in his life, and there was something missing in his soul. You ever have one of those nights where you can't sleep? Maybe it's heartburn, maybe it's your bladder, maybe it's restless leg syndrome. Maybe there's just something on your mind that's swirling through your mind. That was Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's got a night where he can't sleep. And no matter how many sheep he counted, no matter how many warm glasses of milk he drank, no matter how many NyQuil's he downed, he still couldn't sleep. And I don't know if he came to Jesus in the middle of the night because Jesus was so busy he couldn't make a, an appointment during the day. Doubtful. I don't know if he came to Jesus in the middle of the night because he didn't want to be seen by others. Probably. I mean, this is the original Nick at night right here as you read the Bible. And what I do know is this affluent guy, this Bobby Kennedy-like guy, had questions that wouldn't let him rest. 
This was not a flip-flops and cut-offs kind of guy. This wasn't even a business casual kind of guy. This was a button-down, wingtip wearing, affluent academic. And I would guess with his heritage and his background and his wealth, his intellect, he was easily accepted into the exclusive country club of the religious elite of the day known as the Pharisees. In fact, not only was he a part of this financially and spiritually elite group, he was also a part of the inner circle known as the Sanhedrin, the 70 sharpest minds of intellectuals in the Jewish world. These were the most powerful and influential leaders of the day. But when Nicodemus went to Jesus in the middle of the night, most of all, he went as a man with a restless mind. He was unable to sleep. And he had a question. He wanted to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? He wanted to ask, who are you? Where did you come from? And Jesus knew the question he wanted to ask, but Jesus knew the truth that he needed to hear. And so Jesus rocks his world by saying something he didn't expect in verse 3 of John 3. Jesus says, I assure you, unless you are born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus responds in the very next verse and says, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? I think Nicodemus is smiling when he responds to that. He's like, come on, I'm a a Jewish 60-year-old expert in Jewish literature, and you want to talk to me about being born again? How can that happen? I have some questions I'd like to ask you, Jesus. Like, And before he can ask a question, Jesus just interrupts and cuts him off. In verse 5, it says, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. And now I think Jesus is smiling back at him. And in verse 10, Jesus says, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? That phrase, born again, literally translates born from above, a spiritual rebirth. You see, Nicodemus knew All he knew to this point in his life was religion. He knew rituals. He knew rules, rules on tops of rules. He was always trying to do enough good things to get noticed by God. And he's reached a point in his life where that's frustrating to him because you never know if you're doing enough good, keeping enough Ten Commandments, saying enough prayers, jumping high enough, running fast enough, and it all leaves him very empty. And I think he was tired of running. I think he was tired of trying to prove that he was worth something. And Maybe that's where some of you are right now. A few weeks ago, Tom Brady wins his fifth Super Bowl, quarterback of the New England Patriots. He's a wealthy guy. He's married to a supermodel. And yet after winning his third Super Bowl, this affluent guy, here's what he said in a 60 Minutes interview. He said, I'm making more money than I thought I ever could make playing football. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reach my goal, my dream, my life, me, I think. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The interviewer asked him, what's the answer? And Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. 
I think that's where Nicodemus is. He is up and empty. He is successful. He's a part of the 1%. And it's not filled the hole in his soul. And I think he was weary of the treadmill of religious performance that he was on, always trying to prove that he mattered, always trying to prove that he was valuable, that he deserved to be loved by God. And yet no matter what he did, he felt like it wasn't enough. When my wife Barbara and I got married, I had this antique children's bank that had been given to me when I was a child. It was called a picture gallery bank. And the paint had been rubbed off in a number of spots. You'd put like a penny or a nickel in that little guy's hand and there was a lever on the side that you would pull and he would deposit it into the bank. It had belonged to a family friend of ours. It had been her bank when she was a little girl and she gave it to me. And I had always had that bank prominently displayed on a shelf in my bedroom where I intended to continue to prominently display it after Barbara and I got married. But Barbara had different interior design ideas than I did. She thought it might look nicer displayed in the closet or something like that. And I said, honey, but it's an antique. People collect this stuff. And she said, who would want something that ugly? It's a piece of junk. I said, no, I don't think you understand. This is a collector's item. She said, you'd be lucky to get $5 for it at a garage sale, and you ought to feel guilty about that. I said, honey, I don't think you have any idea. This, This really, to some people, it could be worth a lot. Well, finally, I convinced her one day to take the bank to a antique store. And just to see what they would give us for it. So she walks in. She has this bank with her. And she says, my husband has this bank that he's had since he was a little kid. And he insists it's worth something. And I wonder what you would give us for it. And the guy looked it over. And he said, "Uh, I'll give you $120 for it. Now, do you think my wife is going to take $120 for a bank she would have given away 10 minutes earlier now that she knows there's a collector who's going to give her $120 for it? Not on your life. She calls me. She's all excited now. She goes, honey, honey, guess what? Our bank might be worth a lot more than we thought it was. Oh, yeah, now it's our bank. So we started contacting some collectors. I sent some pictures to a collector in Washington, D.C. He said, I will overnight you a cashier's check for that bank for $2,000. Oh, you think my wife's going to take $2,000 for that bank? Not in a million years. To make a long story short, we eventually sold that bank to a collector in Pennsylvania for $4,000. Aren't you happy for us? The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice, right? (laughs) All of a sudden, we were going through all of our closets going, what other junk do we have in here that we could sell? True story, I I pulled that picture offline uh, a while back. Uh, This was not my back particularly, but it was identical to this. It was that picture gallery bank. And this particular bank that you see right there had just sold at auction for $52,000. So you can see how brilliant we were to sell our bank. Now, I told you that story to remind you of something we all know. And that is value is determined by what somebody is willing to pay for something, right? The value of that bank was not determined by what it was worth to Barbara, but by what a collector was willing to pay for it. The value of your house is not determined by what an appraiser says it's worth. Ultimately, the value is determined by what someone is willing to pay you for your house. Value is determined by what somebody is willing to pay for something. Let me show you the value of all people. In this middle-of-the-night conversation with Jesus... Jesus leans into Nicodemus. I think maybe he put his hand on his shoulders. I think maybe he lowered his voice. And for the first time in human history, these words were uttered that have become maybe the most famous words of the Bible. Jesus said, Nicodemus, 
For God so loved the world. How much did he love the world that he gave? How much did he give? What was the price that he was willing to pay? His one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We can look at people and with the plank in our eye, we can say they're not even garage sale material. God looks at them and says, I will take a plank and I will let my only son be nailed to a plank. And he will die for them. And he'll die for you, Nicodemus. That's how valuable you are. That's the price I'm willing to pay for you. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey right now. I don't know whether you love God or hate God. I don't know whether you love church or hate church, but I do know this. If your picture of God is anything less than a God who loves you completely and unconditionally, you have an inaccurate picture of God. His love is for everyone. His love is for frat boys and girls gone wild. His love is for kids who've been in Sunday school since the day they could breathe and those who've never been through the door of a church. His love is for hell's angels, bikers, and gang members, and people counting their days clean and sober, and children who have two mommies. His love is for those with a stagnant faith. His love is for CEOs, and factory workers, and truck drivers, and farmers, and stockbrokers, and single moms, and dishwashers. His love is for politicians, and meth dealers, and tattoo parlor owners, and foster kids. His love is for those who have families that are falling apart, and families that they're pretending that they have it together. His love is for those who are down and out, and those who are up and empty like Nicodemus. His love is for everyone and his love is for you. As I said, these years in Vegas were so good for me because they forced me to deal with in a fresh way what Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And a few years before my wife Barbara and I left Las Vegas, we moved into a neighborhood that forced us to deal with this spirit that we had in ourselves to build walls between ourselves and people who were different than us. Our neighborhood was so odd, so eclectic. Get this, in the house behind us, like our backyard, butted up to their backyard, was a Mormon family. On this side of us was a Hindu family. Across the street from us was a Jewish family. And right next door to us on this side was just your basic Las Vegas heathen family. And they were a fluent family. You know, they were Nicodemus-type people. He was an attorney. Two Mercedes in the driveway. She was a topless dancer in a Las Vegas show. Now, what do you do with that? Well, we started to get to know our neighbors. We especially started to get to know the heathens next door and the Jewish family across the street because we had kids the same age. And if you've had kids, you know what that's like, how kids just start connecting with each other. And so their kids would be in our house every day and our kids would be in their house every day and they'd go on vacation and they'd ask us to get their newspaper and their mail for them. And let me tell you, there were some interesting subscriptions in that mail. They'd have birthday parties for their kids, so we'd all go over next door to the heathens for the birthday party. And I'm just going to tell you how it is. There were a lot of surgically enhanced people at those birthday parties. (laughs) But you know what started to happen to us as we started to get to know our neighbors? We started to like our neighbors. And they started mattering to us. We started to love our neighbors. 
And all of a sudden, it became acutely aware to us what was hanging in the balance for them spiritually. And so we just started praying every day, God, would you use us in our neighbor's lives? Would you use us to point them to you, to point them to Jesus, to point them to amazing grace? And we thought given where they were spiritually, it would probably be five years before we could get them in the door of a church for the very first time. But after a year of living in that neighborhood, 9-11 happened. And those of you that are old enough to remember 9-11, you'll remember that the weekend after 9-11, churches across the U.S. were just jam-packed. There's nothing else to do that weekend. No sporting events were happening. All flights were canceled in the U.S. Everybody was in church that weekend. And after our 9 o'clock service that day, I was back in a little office area kind of getting my sermon notes together uh, for the next service. And my wife, Barbara, walks in, and she's just in tears. And she says, you'll never guess who I just sat with. And I said, who? And she said, the names of the heathens next door. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, I was just walking in the door today to the church, and they were walking in at the same time. And so we sat together. And what we didn't know, because we hadn't talked to them for several days, was the best man in their wedding had been killed in the collapse of one of the World Trade Center towers in New York City. And they were hurting, and they were grieving, and they didn't know of another church. They just knew of our church, so they came. And that morning during the church service, you know, I didn't even know that they were there, but I I said in the middle of the church service, I said, you know, if you've been touched personally this week by some of the losses in Pennsylvania or Washington, D.C. or New York, would you just stand wherever you are? We want to pray for you. And what I didn't know is my heathen neighbors are there and they're standing asking for prayer. Then I said, if somebody's standing next to you, would you just put a hand on them? Would you just pray for them? And so Barbara reaches out her hands on both of my neighbors and she's crying, they're crying. I couldn't believe it. Well, after the 11 o'clock service that morning, I was walking through the hallways just trying to touch and encourage as many people as I could. And all of a sudden, I look down the hall and I see my Jewish neighbor from across the street. I'm like, what is going on? Her name was Stacy and she came just kind of running at me and she had tears in her eyes and she just came up. She gave me this great big bear hug and she said, oh, Gene, you have no idea what being here today has meant to me. And I watched God use that tragedy as the catalyst for spiritual transformation and growth in the lives of my neighbors, who I used to think I didn't have anything in common with. You know, when we left Las Vegas, we had so many difficult goodbyes. We had a goodbye to a church family that we'd been a part of for 18 years. We had a goodbye to our oldest son who was finishing college there. We had a difficult goodbye to Barbara's family. She was born and raised there. We were leaving her family there. But do you know what took us by surprise, our biggest surprise and our goodbyes, that our most difficult goodbye was to these neighbors that we used to think we didn't have anything in common with and who God used to show us that we needed to take the plank in our eye and build a bridge to them. Friends, God's dream for his church has always been that it would be an everyone kind of place. For the down and out, for the up and empty, Because a church that isn't for everyone, everywhere, really isn't a church for anyone, anywhere. And that doesn't mean that we can't have sincere disagreements with people. It doesn't mean that we don't speak truth to people. Because the Bible tells us we're to speak the truth in love. 
but it does mean we don't write off people. We don't slam dunk people. We don't label people. We don't demean them. We don't put rude comments on Facebook about them because when we demean another human being, we are demeaning another person made in the image of God, and that's sin. I want to tell you something about those neighbors who seem so spiritually disinterested, those colleagues that you work with, those other students at school. Deep down, they really are interested. You ever play hide-and-seek when you were a kid? What's the object of hide-and-seek? To hide so well that you don't get found, right? Let me ask you, did you really not want to be found? I mean, is there anybody that's been out there like for 25 years now still hiding? (laughs) They still haven't found me. No, I mean, you'd do that for five minutes and what would you do? They hadn't found you yet. You'd start sending signals. Boop. (laughs) You'd stick out a hand. You'd stick out a foot. They'd, oh, shucks, you found me. Listen, those people who seem so disinterested in God, they may act like they don't want to be found. But if you'll look closely, there's a hand out. There's a foot out. They're saying, deep down, I need a God who loves me. I need a God who will give me a fresh start and a new beginning. Deep down, I need his amazing grace. Evidently, Nicodemus found it. Because when we get to John chapter 19, we find him preparing Jesus' body for burial. Think about that. I wonder if when he was prying his hands and feet from the nails, if if Nicodemus didn't think back to that night where he heard those words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God's heart at God's house is for everyone. God's heart and God's house and God's love is for you. And maybe you need to reach out to his love today. It's for everyone. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.